Bonjourno, and welcome to the See For Yourself podcast, the only podcast where all our rituals include as many candles as are available in the immediate area. I am your host, Dead Eyes Happy Heart, and I am joined here by... Disposable Camera. Aren't we all? I I have a movie here for you today, uh, Disposable Camera. Are you prepared? I am mentally ready to hear about this movie. <laughs> I keep I keep thinking about disposable cameras and how like is that even a thing anymore? Do they still make those? So the last time I went out and bought it was probably 2011. I'm not in touch with whether they're still on the shelves, but they were in the hands of a youthful person in 2011. I imagine they're the kind of thing that like more modern like anti like like we're trying to make reusable resources and whatnot. Like can't have a disposable camera. We just need to find a cheap way to make a reusable camera that like everybody can get a hold of you know until everybody can get a hold of it disposable camera all the way yeah that's like one of those things that might just be like a dead art form now though just because of like okay i brought it up because i like the manual clicking when you wind back for the next that that little wheel is so gratifying to the Unless you spent money just to like throw photos away just so that you can wind the wheel, which is terrible and very wasteful. It's one of the perks of having a disposable camera that you don't get with the electronic cameras or your phone. For anybody who's never used a disposable camera before and is just listening to that noise <laughs> that she just made and thinking, that was a horrible noise. That doesn't sound good at all. She's doing a, a horrifying disservice to the actual like good tactile feeling it provides. There's plenty of like stops in the moment tactily that I was trying to imitate. So I pardon, pardon. It's, it's not an easy sound to replicate. So I don't uh, I don't envy you being in this situation I've put you in. I apologize. This is how we know you have see for yourself diehards when the disposable camera industry booms. <laughs> <laughs> On the day, on the day that we have that much success, <laughs> that'll be when we drop the podcast. We just, we just give it up. We're like, all right, we did it. We changed the world. We've done it, boys. <laughs> I'll issue a formal apology to environmental groups, and we'll high five that we we made an impact on the world. Yeah, and then we'll start our, our second podcast. You know, jumping jacks for yourself. Where before we do the jumping jacks, we'll talk about how difficult we think they'll be, and then after we do them, we'll talk about how nice they were, or how terrible they were, or whatever have you. Uh, same, same formula, but for jumping jacks instead of movies. I kind of hate that I would be willing to try out this experimental episode. <laughs> I mean, it's it's about as good of an idea as uh, the idea we had for, like, the season wrap-up episode. Like, God, all our ideas are trash, man. I, I had one good idea for this podcast, and, and now uh, <laughs> we're just gliding, gliding in on the coattails of that idea, you know? There might be another one, we just don't know when it's going to happen. So we got to be in the booth, ready, just in case. So uh, I've got this this movie. The name of the movie is uh, Cul-de-Sac. Have you seen the film? No. We, we tried something recently where we talked about what we thought the, the movie would be about just based off of the title. So I'd like to engage you with that really quick. What do you think? Just based off of that title, Cul-de-Sac, what's the movie going to be about? Oh my gosh, my stomach sinks with the sort of terror they're going to put in there. And it won't be like over-the-top slash or anything. It, it's like vivarium. It's like, ooh, look at this suburb. But everything is not as it seems. And instead of it being like, yeah, this is a group of people and they're in debt, it's going to be something like um, every day is a little bit like the one before in cul-de-sac but it's a more creepy but it's acceptable for some reason it's like greener grass it's it's just 
it strikes me as um like a middle class not dystopia but like the gross kind of satire where they take it to the absurd part and then they just give me bad feelings and that's that's their statement cultisec conditioned bad feelings i'm gonna go ahead and tell you that that's the stupidest thing i ever heard and this is the actual idea this is what it's actually gonna be are you ready for this are you ready i'm ready i'm ready i'm gonna give it to me yes what it's actually gonna be about in this world it's just like our world exact same except you must at the very least use three syllable words you cannot use less than three syllables in any word you use but why wouldn't it be called poetry well it could be any number of things but i'm i think that they would just pick i, I think the way that you name a movie like that is you pick one word that they are using that is just not being used for its original purpose and like cul-de-sac is one of those words where when you're like all right we have to use three syllable words all the time at the very least three syllable words what is a three syllable word that's pretty simple to like say out loud but is also incredibly niche in its original purpose and cul-de-sac sort of fulfills that right like a cul-de-sac is such a specific thing that now in this three-syllable world cul-de-sac has been repurposed to mean like we can't say fuck anymore so now we just say cul-de-sac <laughs> No, that would be a relief if it was more towards yours and mine because I'm like I don't I don't really want to deal with I don't want to deal with the subtle horror of middle class world. So I'm hoping for something that's challenging linguistically. I'm hoping for something that's more high energy. Like what happens if you say the four syllable word or what happens if you fail and only do the two? Do you get cut out? What are the consequences? Oh yeah, I mean it's it's like you get you get captured and taken to the fucking firing squad. That's got to be it. Like we, because like right, the the premise is so simple and lighthearted and basic. It, it, it's like it's like oppression, but like you know, diet oppression. The punishment has to be like extreme as fuck, right? Like, oh man, yeah. The other side of the giver. You said uh, covet instead of covetous. Get him, get him, take him away. <laughs> oh man, I, I can't keep up with it because I'm like, release the hounds is not three syllables. Yeah, even release isn't good. You'd, you'd have to be like unfetter the hounds. <laughs> <laughs> It would be a lot to hear as a regular audience member. I'd imagine that the director was like, you know, the general populace is they do their own thing and I'm tired of I'm tired of appealing to them. This is for you English majors. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> I've been waiting on this since Shakespeare. Not just the English majors, you know, uh, maybe biologists, you know, that they're getting upset that people, nobody uses the actual word. And animalia is like the, the, the family name for animals, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, you can say animalia now. You can't say, well, I guess you can say animals. So animals, never mind. That's, that one doesn't work. But there are other ones I'm sure that do work, right? All we're demonstrating is the need for this movie to teach us these three syllable words. Yeah, like in Instead of saying spider, you have to say arachnid, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I like the idea. I'm going to workshop it, turn it into a really long script. <laughs> it, it reminds me of an Ed, Ed, and Eddie episode. That's what it sounds like to me. Personally, that's what it feels like. Yeah. That is, the, that is the highest compliment I think I've ever received. Thank you. You are welcome. <laughs> so are you ready to hear the actual blurb here? Ah. Uh... Yes, I, I have, I'm stealing up my nerves. I'm ready. When a crook and his injured partner in crime seek shelter in a remote castle by the sea, they find themselves in a confrontation with the owner.
I heard the first phrase and I was like, oh, yeah, it's like a get out cul-de-sac. And then I heard a few more words and I was like, a castle is the anchor of this cul-de-sac. Then I heard more words and I was like, confronted by the angry Edward Scissorhand-like neighbors of the cul-de-sac. And then none of that happened. And I was like, oh, okay. Hmm. (laughs) To be honest with you, we're not 100% sure. We've talked about this very briefly, uh, me and the fellow giganto brains behind uh, see for yourself whether or not we want to continue to do the idea of like hey I'll just say the name and then I'll ask the person to kind of give me some ideas of what they think based off the name some people really struggle like oh dang I had my idea and it's definitely not that now <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah um, at the end of the description I was like and this is the history of how cult of sex came to be and I was like ew <laughs> <laughs> not like that maybe that's uh maybe cul-de-sac is just the name of the owner of the castle like he's count cul-de-sac <laughs> it could be that but i'm gonna be kind of upset if he's like no 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 please it's just my castle i'm just like you this is like a cul-de-sac to me and i'm like don't you roll credits now <laughs> don't you roll credits <laughs> So, so I guess that's a good question. Do you think they'll actually use the title of the film in the film? Like, will they say the word cul-de-sac? If they say the word cul-de-sac, I like, I'm, I'd say I'm 85% sure they're not going to say it. But if they do say it in the other 15%, it's going to be in like a profound quote. It's <laughs> That's what I think. So for, for the record, this is a 1966 movie. My color palette just really shifted for some reason. <laughs> So yeah. Austin Powers could have theoretically been the person hiding out in this castle. Well, maybe not Austin Powers. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the movie is, uh, as I understand it, it is in black and white. Uh, not because they had to, but as like a directorial choice. So have you seen it? I have not. Golden episode. Golden episode. Yeah, nobody's seen it here. And after reading the synopsis, you still gave me the fun of a three-syllable contest for the duration of the movie? Yes. <laughs> do, do you want to make another prediction or are you doubling <laughs> down? <laughs> for the record, you're, you, you are absolutely correct. My idea could still stand. <laughs> Nothing in that blurb contradicts my idea, so I'm, uh... <laughs> I was thinking, you know, he's got the punishment right there and the hot iron poker away from <laughs> being told to the police or tortured in a dungeon. Three syllables. Well, here, let me, let me try to help you to create your next prediction. So, first of all, the guy's a crook. The main the main dude that we talk about in the in the blurb, you know, when a crook, you know. Yeah. What's he a crook for? What is he doing? What's What makes him such a crimey boy? My knee-jerk reaction is he's a thief but I'm like that is so boring (laughs) like please don't make him just a thief I would like for this crook to be a real estate agent (laughs) who is uh, at the same time trying to buy the property from the castle owner while being like indebted to this castle owner person I I think that that's crookish that's 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 really crooked of them to be uh trying to get some sort of real estate deal out of a favor okay what if he's a he's a real estate agent who's been hired who's who's like trying to land the the estate he wants to sell this castle it's like an open thing you know real estate agents are coming and they're trying to sell to different people and whatnot whoever sells first gets the big the big commission you know yeah oh and i also like to say this isn't his first like he's a crook in the past for shady real estate deals and this is 
yet another shady real estate deal to try to get the commission he's like actually a, a perfectly law-abiding person up until this point where he gets like a person that he convinces is his like partner in crime they're like you know buddies you know and he's like yeah we're gonna go and we're gonna case this joint we're gonna go and get this get to this hideout that i have and you know it's it's this uh, abandoned uh castle and they get there but the guy who owns it is still like there for some reason like he's like mm -hmm. you know doing stuff so he has to get the guy in on it and he's like hey man i'm trying to sell to this guy I'm trying to get him to invest in this hideout of mine that i use for the crimes we do together the only person who can really afford this type of place is a criminal you don't care if the guy's a criminal who buys it right so you have to pretend like you've caught us and you're mad but you're normally not here and this is a one-off thing and like that's the plot is them like him and the guy who's trying to sell this house trying to get this other dude to buy it <laughs> I was I was following along until you gave orders. So I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. And 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 real estate man accidentally gets mafia dude to pose as um just a convincing just a nice persuasion artist and the persuasion is a little too real and now they're like facing the consequences because one of them had diplomacy and the other not so much and the intimidation factor went out and now the castle owner is like not allowing them to leave it's a hostage situation but they're crooks so who's going to help them sort of thing i do like that when that like comes up and the answer is like well you're a criminal you can't call the police like <laughs> I'm like, oh, fuck, I forgot I don't have as many civil rights as a normal person. Dang you! <laughs> Wanted man, man is a liability. So why exactly were you on my property when there's clearly a no trespassing sign with a footnote that says no real estate agents, this is my property and has been in my family line for eight generations? Be like, oh, no, just, you know, wanted a drink of water. Yeah. <laughs> Wanted to drink water with me and my pal. My pal's so thirsty. He needs more water than I do. We are notoriously thirsty men. <laughs> <laughs> you know how long your your front lawn is? It takes us a long time to walk to your door. So we were thirsty then. We're extra thirsty now. Yeah, I think the confrontation with the owner just being like, hey, you're here and I don't want you to be here is a little bit boring. And I would very much prefer the idea of like, okay, the confrontation is there isn't a confrontation and it's all kind of fabricated to be part of this illusion that we're trying to sell people on this idea. I, I like that better than just like, hey, I said no people and, and your people. And I said, no, I, I specifically requested no people. So for the sake of interest, not for prediction because if, if we're going for a wild movie replace the curmudgeoning beast of the castle with Willy Wonka and he's like I have been waiting for someone to ignore my trespassing signs and to inherit my castle full of all these trapdoors full of all of these otherworldly slaves <laughs> and you're training Moscow man finally two young men and they're like they're like 50 year old dudes <laughs> two young men ready to take on my, we're, we're pretty sure we're older than you are mr wonka please <laughs> it's time for me to retire i'm, I'm, a, I'm a cripplingly old man 45 years old there's only so many years I can spend wondering about the future of my castle. I wake up in the morning and get out of bed with my legs that work perfectly well, except there's a little click in my knees and I, I immediately realized my time is short. <laughs> Death comes for us all. <laughs> and so I put up those no trespassing signs, trying to lure in a courageous young individual. <laughs> That's the movie I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, but obviously he can't be like selling candy. What does he sell instead of candy? He has to like he has to make something or sell something. Yeah, what what makes him rich enough to have a mansion full of you know secret rooms and trapdoors and machinations and otherworldly slaves? Well, I wasn't thinking of him as a real businessman since it's a secluded castle somewhere where you can, you know, have a hideout to the reader's imagination. I mean, you could technically open a door and be like, this is the dimension too, but that seems too heroic, you know? I'm a guardian of other worlds. I just don't want it to be that heroic. I, I also like the idea that it's it's very possible to create this character and never illuminate the audience yeah. onto, like, <laughs> and he manufactures bear traps and that's what he makes. <laughs> like, we never have to give a thing that he makes. We go into one room and it's all traps and you're like ah oh, so that's what this guy does and we go into another room and it's all ribbons and then we're like ah oh, so that's what this guy does and we go into another room <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i guess it's a collector none of these rooms are what he makes he's just right. like mildly autistic and has like a room for each of his different <laughs> fascinations you know yes this is how i spent my 15th to 25th year <laughs> yeah yeah and this is the puzzle room where i keep all the puzzles i have yet to complete and then the next room is and this is the other puzzle room where i keep all the puzzles i have completed yes yeah yeah what i would also like to for fun for that ticking clock because otherwise we're having just a great time i would like for there to be an illusion not an illusion a illusion to a minotaur at the base <laughs> level <laughs> That's that's what the confrontation is. It's he's just like, and I'm gonna give you everything, but you have to find the whatever the Minotaur is. It doesn't have to be a Minotaur. It could be like, yeah. maybe it's literally like it's something. He's like the horrible beast, and the horrible beast is just like a spider that's loose in his like shower. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping that the Minotaur is real because it would give the conflict some tension of I will give you everything for absolutely nothing. And like, no, no, really, dude, you don't have to do that. You don't we're not interested. We don't need to know how you feed. We don't need to know how you feed the, the Minotaur. And they're like, nah, you you need to you need to hear it the the runnings on, the goings on of this castle. But please, please don't give it to us. So they'd have to find a way to like bamboozle. They'd have to trick the Wonka person and escape. Oh, man. I like that, too. I like the idea of, like, I'll give you all your wildest dreams come true. But there's a dark underbelly here that I'm not being super forthcoming about, but I'm hinting at. And they're just like, well, we got to get out of here before this thing, this this monkey's paw curls up in on us, you know? Yes. Yeah, I like that. I think that's, I think that's really neat. And to have it be, like, an actual physical threat and not just the existential, like, you know, sometimes when you get exactly what you want, it's not what you what it first appeared oh. now now you guys aren't close friends anymore it's like no now we've inherited the dietary needs of a monster <laughs> yeah there's an eldritch beast living at the center of this factory of like wonders do you know that it talks at night it freaking talks all night man. <laughs> doesn't it doesn't it doesn't even talk it, it communicates by screaming like a baby <laughs> And if you hear a child screaming, that's not a real child. Please don't attend to it. What? What did you just say? That nah, we'll talk about it some other time. Clearly, clearly I have upset you. Clearly I have upset you. I, uh, oh, no, no, no. I've been uncouth. Uh, my apologies. Uh, <laughs> uh, pardon me. <laughs> I think you might just be hungry. Can we, can we please? <laughs> Otherworldly other orange and green slaves of mine, please come forth. The, the Wimble Dimbles will, uh, will attend to you. <laughs> wimble Dimble, Wimble Dimble. <laughs> I hope you're ready for this movie to just be like a depressing drag of a film. If it is, then I predicted it right. <laughs> 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 the 
because before I had fun with it, I was like, oh man, he's a crook in that he stole something, and this is other crook in that they stole something. And then, I don't know, now they're going to say cul-de-sac one time profoundly, and there's going to be like cringy stuff that accumulates before they leave or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that that's that's what I expect, but I would love to be surprised by a Willy Wonka. That's all I need. One Willy Wonka-esque character with a Willy Wonka-esque motivation, and this movie can be fixed. Why was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory just a perfect movie? I didn't enjoy it as a child, but as a concept, I, I think it's a nice romp. As like a a like movie person, it's hard not to love Willy Wonka and the in the Chocolate Factory. Set design? There's a lot of like set design elements that are just really neat. There's there's like a million things to say about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Even just our little like more edgy Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and we'll have like a Minotaur in it, and he's scary, and we'll have like a the guys are criminals instead of like young young boys. They're like 50 year old men who've been career criminals for like 30, 40 years now. And and Willy Wonka is like more even more delusional than he is in in the Willy Wonka version, you know. And uh, he's more of an aristocrat sort of uh, rich man instead of just like a whimsical man, I guess. Even just creating that out of Willy Wonka, we haven't changed much about the Willy Wonka <laughs> format. <laughs> <laughs> no, no change necessary. This was exactly what we needed to inject life <laughs> and gags or scary into the movie because you get both. You get both. It really is. The, the Willy Wonka movie is kind of like this perfect middle point between horror and comedy. Yes. Leaning a lot more into the comedy, but definitely a lot of like horrific elements like children are, they're not necessarily dying, but they're basically dying. <laughs> Uh, the life you had before this experience is gone. Kiss it goodbye. It's not coming back. Yeah, and it was weird how often that movie would get played in, like, middle and high school for a group of, like, young children. I, I think at that point they were just really hoping that the Oompa Loompa lessons would rub off on this generation. Don't, don't treat your parents like that. Or else! And I was like, don't let... Don't I have to get a golden ticket before this is my lesson? This just doesn't seem applicable. Yeah. So, why didn't I get to see a cool chocolate river before I was like told to stop being a greedy little fuck? <laughs> I just feel like I was rewarded a lot. And only now is it a problem. Hey, you were swimming around in that chocolate river. So now we teach you about how, you know, you're, you're eating eating a little too much there, buddy. Uh, uh, I didn't get to swim in the chocolate river. <laughs> when they're talking about not being a glutton, they're talking about only one scoop of mashed potatoes. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah, that's that's how it applies to normal children. <laughs> and I'm talking about cafeteria line. This is a cafeteria line. There's like four signs that say one level scoop, and people are still hauling a scoop and a half of mashed potatoes on their on their tray. How fucking dare they? And these are instant mashed potatoes too. Like just add water, mashed potatoes. It's Willy Wonka time. Yeah. So, uh, dead eyes. Any more predictions for Cult of Saka? Are you satisfied with where we've landed? Well, we are coming up on that time, aren't we? I do. Uh, I do wonder if there's any last words that we have here. I, I know I'm perfectly satisfied with my three-syllable idea and our, our collective Willy Wonka horrifying Minotaur experience idea, but uh, was there anything more you wanted to say or add? Or I will say that this format of um, title first and then synopsis has really helped me not be confined to a genre, whereas I think before with the synopsis handy, you're like, oh, I know, I know exactly the beats 
to get. So I don't think you should shy away from it just yet. I think you should keep experimenting with it. But as for the movie, I am very curious about black and white goings on of this movie. I do want to tell you just a couple things before we get into the film. I was told about this film on like a list of, hey, these are films that you should just watch for like educating yourself about films. So it's probably like a film person's film and not like a everybody can enjoy this type of film. I'm going to interpret that to mean I should be looking at camera angles. I'm going to be upset to be traumatized. Just going to put that up there. (laughs) I do not know anything about how traumatizing this movie. It is described as a psychological thriller, a comedy, and a regular thriller. Okay. Okay. I saw comedy and said, oh, hey. Seems like something disposable camera would enjoy. Yeah. And then I didn't put any thought into who directed it or where I had heard uh, about it from first. And then as I'm like, you know, okay, we're wrapping up and I'm looking at like, what are some other things I can bring up to kind of like put a bookend at the end of this? Then I see, oh, Roman Polanski. And I'm like, oh no, this movie's fucked. Oh, okay. Well, I'm already strapped in. And I said I had my nerves to steel. I'm going to do my best to make it all the way through the movie. And I hope you your audience will do the same yeah uh audience if if disposable camera and uh her you know weak constitution can make it through this nightmare then you know you can too it's gonna be a trial but i'm doing it for you and you're doing it for me we're in it together here at see it for yourself is is weak constitution an offensive thing to say about someone or is that just like not if it is absolutely true which it isn't my case Okay, well, with that said, we are going to go and see for yourself. I'm ready. Yeah, we said it. We said the thing. Agnes, we return. What a what a film. I made it all the way through. I also did that. I managed to get all the way through the film. <laughs> as we do every episode. Hey! Really difficult film to pin down exactly. Yeah. I was like, well, it did keep me wondering, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, I... I constantly felt like if I were in the same room, I still wouldn't know what to do. I feel like the film amplified the indecision where it's like you should make a move, but of the tools that you have, what are you going to do? There were a lot of things that were brought up, things like, you know, indecision in the face of danger. Reluctancy to take a risk. Infidelity got brought up, but like never really got resolved in any meaningful way. One thing that um, kind of touched me was when Dickie says, I've been regular with you. And I was like, I haven't heard it said that way. But yeah, I mean, he's shouting a lot and he does make <clears throat> thuggish recommendations about what to do to be healthy. But for the most part, he never punched anybody in the face and is very easy to comply with. I mean, when you dilly dally, like you don't know what you're doing and he's like, come on. And then you dilly dally and he's like, come on. It's it's never like, I'm going to blow your head off. Yeah, he he was pretty hesitant to uh, at, at, at any point. It would not be outrageous for a character like Dickie to impose himself physically as a threat upon the other characters. That would be a very normal way to take, like, how do I do this? And he doesn't. He's mostly charming. He's mostly easy to get along with. Even when the wife comes down to, like, meet or, like, not meet him, she's kind of trying to, like, take some kind of action against him, which bizarrely for a 1966 movie, Teresa is like a character of action. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. 
Even if that action is poor, even if she doesn't like take the threat seriously, she's like, everyone should do something at all times. And she's like walking here, running here, slipping in and out of this situation. And if she's not doing that, she's like smoking with chaos behind her eyes. It's <laughs> Yeah, like she is willing to do the things. And you don't see that a lot for women in the 1960s. And it's it's just good. To, it's refreshing to see like a female character, a woman just going out trying to get stuff done, whether that stuff is like totally unplanned, yeah, a yeah. completely entitled way of going about the world. But yeah, she's like, you should have done this. I, I deserve this and he deserves this. And yeah, it's like, I, I guess it's also double folded because she's not really given to explanation. Like her explanation is vague. It's simple but it's vague it's like you should have because you're a man and i was like okay because i'm a man has a whole bunch of responsibilities on it you don't like cooking when you know diggy's like go make breakfast so is that because you're not a woman like where are you coming from yeah it seems like there's a, a lot of uh incongruity in her logic uh and that's i mean that's perfectly fair you know these are uh, stressful times you're not going to be at your most logical but yeah she goes down to ends up talking with dicky and she's basically saying like hey, if I wanted to run off and like get help, I could right now. And you would be unable to stop me effectively because I'm sure if I turned around and just said, all right, I'll go back to my room. You would just keep digging and not check in on that at all. And I could just swim away. Dicky just keeps saying like, ah, go to hell. Ah, leave me alone. Ah, shut up you. He's like telling her, I don't like what you're saying right now, but I'm unwilling to like concede that you're right. Yeah. I could stand up, take my shovel and break both your ankles. It wouldn't change a damn thing about my plans. <laughs> There's this one line where I'm like, Teresa, don't be thirsty. He's like, if I wanted to, I could something something like a pumpkin. And she's like, like a pumpkin. And then he doesn't follow up because he's like, that's not really what I want you to focus on. <laughs> uh, he basically says I could I, I could give you the sex move. <laughs> He straight up says immediately after that, like, I'm not into chicks like you. And I don't yeah. know. He, he never elaborates on that. Like, what what kind of chicks are you into, Dickie? Like, let's have a dialogue. Not quite the end, but on the beach when he's talking to George, he's like, oh, they're all the same. They're all, they're all whores, not loyal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Th those are those are probably my favorite lines in the movie. There's a lot of lines like this, and I I, I sort of referenced this earlier. Uh, uh, sort of one of the the, fi the final line in the film is Agnes. I, I mentioned Agnes earlier, but all my favorite lines in the movie are all the ones that are kind of just completely unexplored. They're just like briefly mentioned, you know, like ah, all women are just whores. They're all unloyal, and like why would you say that, Dicky? Can you please explain? In a modern film, he would explain that, but in this film, they're willing to just have him say that, or willing to have him say, "I don't like girls." like you or there's a lot of different lines that just remain sort of they're there but they're never explained yeah there's one where like i think albie is dying and he like points out george kind of looks like his his i think it's his divorced wife or maybe his late wife his wife he's no longer with he's like oh he, that looks like her and we never get an explanation of that but like why does george look like your your ex-wife man <laughs> Because he's got makeup on and he's kind of has like flowing hair slash nightgale garments. And I guess that's where the comedy part is. We're like, oh, ha, ha. he looks like a woman. Oh, ho, ho. yeah. A lot of the comedy doesn't really like all of the parts where George is just like, you know, reluctantly let his uh, wife, you know, put makeup and a dress on him. All that's supposed to be like a riot, I imagine. Yeah. In a modern audience, I'm like, okay, yeah. Uh -huh. I was like, he says no. <laughs> 
Let him go. He doesn't like this. So yeah, like George and Teresa's relationship is super weird because she's just a hellion. She is at, at no point in this story has she not been just a fucking animal. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, how did you get her to say I do? Did she snarl during the vowels? Like, ah! <laughs> I'm smoking his face. Like, how are they married? They they hired a pastor who like speaks German. And so like, they're like, they're like yep, uh, I, I do. And then they get to her and she's just like, ah! and he's like, that's, that's what I'm saying I do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely the kind of person that when they're like, do you take him to be your lawfully wedded husband? And she's just like, <laughs> she just starts doing interpretive dance. You know like, You know what? She should have seagulled caw because we got a lot of that. Or she could have chicken balked because we got a lot of that too. I don't typically try to be very critical of the animal acting. Maybe I should start. But those chickens were on point. <laughs> I thought you would love to talk about the, oh, I know I'm going to butcher this, endogeneic sound? Uh, the, I'm sorry, one more time for me? The endogeneic, the, the sound that comes the, from the- The diegetic? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was very close. I thought you were, you were right up on it. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> I was like, man, this is a silent film. And then I hear music and I was like, wow this scene has music and then the music is definitely coming from a place that gives it music except for like two scenes i think like the ending yeah the, the ending has that like ticking clock noise in a lot of the scenes where george is kind of like i that's that's the one that i felt the most that like ticking clock the the tick, 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 letting us know like kind of that feeling of impatience or or frustration or like time's running out i'm not sure exactly what it was but like it maybe a, a mix of different things i did like some of the some of the times where the music is used diegetically and non-diegetically sort of close to one another and i liked how that little kid like ruined her uh record and then later on she tries to play the same record and it's still ruined <laughs> Because I was like, oh, there should be something wrong with this thing. And I'm now actively listening, like waiting for something to be not right about it. Was there was there any like joke or gag in the movie that you actually felt like this is genuinely comedically valuable? I didn't think of it as this is a comedy. But the closest thing I was like, man, George and Dickie could kiss right now. They're so drunk and close to each other. Is that is am I the only one that says that? The, will they kiss? Are they going to kiss? <laughs> you, you've been playing too many dating simulators. Is, I'm, is sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry but um recently uh i heard a situation about poor acting in the theater where um people were just reluctant to get into each other's bubbles and i'm looking at the scene with like fresh eyes about proximity between actors and i'm like they they uh you know they're not shy like what what do we not have to be shy about so i i think the closest in summary i think the beach is supposed to be the funniest scene because you got drunk and and they agree and they disagree and one of them shouting at a plane and <laughs> but you can't keep it there because immediately afterwards a gun is introduced and then it's not introduced anymore i did like that scene holistically like the entirety of it is just a great scene but like for singular jokes like actual like one oh begins and ends okay for like just one singular joke it's just dicky asking for Teresa to make him coffee and of course he doesn't realize he's dealing with the literal devil like this woman has looked into the the eye of chaos 
and made and made it blink. Like she is, you know, and 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 so she when he's make me my coffee, yeah. She's like, okay, makes him. She starts making him the coffee, and then when the conversation reaches like a height, she like grabs the coffee, walks it over to him, and throws it out the fucking window and goes, "Your coffee's ready." And I'm like. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> he likes it. He he loves her 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 nerve. She's got um, what's it? Moxie. She's got Moxie. That's Teresa. I think that for both of these characters, this is a great scene to display like who they are as characters. For for Teresa, it shows that she she just laughs in the face of danger. She's an animal. She is she is sixteen gorillas in a one pound bag. Like she's just ready. If I were to... a man, I would take you down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'd like to think that. God, she just immediately goes at him at the feminist approach. She's like, if I were a Man, this would never happen and he's like i'm a i'm a criminal i'm a career criminal woman <laughs> you think i give a fuck if you're a man <laughs> and and then for for dicky it's his like ability to turn like something that is like a situation where he should like almost any other character would like i have to put my foot down i have to you know establish my power here and he just laughs it off and says hey we're gonna have some people here tomorrow make sure you make coffee for them and not on the terrace ha 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 he's such a like jaunty laughy like he's willing to put up with a lot of shit because he's not actively trying to hurt anybody not really yeah i think maybe in another in another dimension i had a, a good laugh at that telephone phone bit because you're only hearing one side of the conversation i think the captions helped me do the rest but for the most part it's like hey boss hey yeah we did it boss what in an hour what no now you're being unfair boss you're being unfair (laughs) (laughs) i did i did like that like the the peon telling like the boss man like well that's that's an unreasonable request boss You're just being angry. We, we didn't even get to explain ourselves. Hello? Yeah. And, and then when he's explaining it to Albie later, and Albie's like, the boss doesn't love us anymore. There was a chuckle that came out of me for that. He's like, I don't think he loves us anymore. And I'm like... I felt sad. So I didn't laugh along. I was like, they must have been close to their boss or their boss's boss. Like, they, they still seek shelter in his decision and it's just not that approval is long gone yeah there's no like uh not a lot of love to give there yeah and you see it because like for a minute he's like the boss sent a helicopter can you believe the power this guy has he sent a helicopter and it's like nah nah that guy didn't so I wonder if like if we look at this movie as like a cosmic representation of what life can be like a lot of the time sometimes it's funny sometimes it's violent sometimes it's really sad and like this movie kind of has a lot of those different elements does the boss represent you know a father or or god or whatever power you believe in and that's why these characters are like oh look you know he's he's coming to save us with a helicopter or a plane or whatever oh lord yeah becomes obvious this wasn't you know whatever power you believe in coming to save you it was just nothing. It was just happenstance. And now you're just angrily firing a gun into the air, you know? I can see the waiting for a Godot-esque explanation because even George is like, hey, he's going to go back to his gang and everything's going to be the way that it was. And that'd be great, you know? Just just scoot him on over to his gang and, and everything goes back nice. And so in a sense, he's also waiting for it. But I, I don't know. It just seems way simplistic for me to be like, one phone call is all of prayer and the boss is... is is God 
it and I, I feel like more the message is like be nice to fellow people because they're in this posh isolated place and they're not good people they don't have good manners for each other they don't respect each other like the entourage comes and they use social pressure to get what they want from George and they want the chicken and then they want <laughs> entertainment and they want information about Agnes and and they want anything that Teresa suggests. I don't know why they're so crazy about the exhibition. I think it's a way to show that they support him so that they can be in his life even more so. But like you can tell George is not a fan of them and they are not paying attention to any of the cues he's giving that he's not a fan of them. So between him, the rotten kid, the rotten wife, the people that are down to earth, Dickie and Albie, and they're constantly like kicked around for I appreciate that Dickie's like, you don't just step on my dead friend's glasses. And he's like, it was an accident. It may have been, but I was totally filled with the same righteous rage of like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure it was just an accident for you to step on my friend's glasses. I do like the idea of like, almost any criminal should effectively be a working class person, even if they just had a big score, you know, they're, they're gonna have to use that money to pay off like debts and you know, make sure that, you know, people are taken care of and so on and so forth. So they're kind of always in this state of being a working class individual. And it certainly feels that way with uh, George and Albie. They seem like they're just working guys, you know? Everybody else we meet in the uh, in the movie is not a working class individual. They're like Absolutely. well-to-do. They're, they're wealthy. We'll go shrimping if we want to. We'll use the boat if we want to. We'll just come on over if we want to. We'll host an exhibit if we want to. And and it's, it's crazy to me, too, that they're like well-to-do, but they're not excellent at anything. It doesn't seem like they're good at anything that they do. Uh, we go through and we see, like, this gallery of their artwork, and it's all crap. <laughs> Like, none of the art is like finished yeah it's not it's not finished it's not like noteworthy in any way and they they don't react to it that way either like the creator um george is like this is nothing and then instead of being like i've never seen brushstrokes like that in my life they're just like well you know he's related to somebody who is a good painter so let's continue treating it like it's a good painting yeah they note that like well you know you can be good by being adjacent to somebody who is you know good <laughs> I'm going to add those chickens, man. She does not care about them. The eggs are rotten. But as soon as it's turned into a garage, her beloved chickens, the only thing that she cares about, the poor chicken house. And I was like, the amount of Fs I have seen for the birds in this film. Birds are background actors. They can't make it a huge scene all of a sudden because you never cared. And like, this isn't just the camera not catching her caring. This is part of her character because George is like, oh, now you choose to care about chickens at the worst possible time. The one time where it would be reasonable for you to not care about them. Now suddenly you care. <laughs> that is so her. <laughs> yeah. She laughs at his broken historical stained glass window being broken. I'm, I'm telling you, there's like a reading of this where Teresa's the devil and George is supposed to be God. Like there's something here. <laughs> I, I can see it. But I just, I don't think, it doesn't do anything for me. To me, it's, I don't know, love what you do, even if it's out of your hands. It, I, I still think that Dickie's civility is more profound because it's so rarely seen. So to me, the message has to be wrapped up in what makes him calm under situations that spiral and worsen. And it's not sobriety. I mean, the man drinks a whole bunch of vodka, but he doesn't, he doesn't blame it for his rash actions later. You never see that. He had to bury his friend. I was like, no, that guy, his friend, his friend that wasn't all that nice, his friend that thought that he was betrayed. <laughs> 
His friend that won't listen. To be fair to Albie, he did have a bullet wound the entire movie. Yes. And and a machine gun in his back for however long it took before they crashed. Yeah. He's not, like, (laughs) it's very reasonable for him to be disgruntled. (laughs) He's very disgruntled. I don't know how long you're willing to go with a bullet wound and, like, literally no medical treatment for that. Like, (laughs) great. (laughs) I'm, I would be insufferable in those circumstances. They would be like, can you, man, you're, you're supposed to be dying. Can you shut the fuck up? And I'd be like, leave me alone. I'm going to bitch until my last moments. <laughs> that is basically what he did. And, and you know, Dickie's like, you don't have to necessarily die. We could still try to, like, work with it. And Albie's like, I want some nice adult juice before I go to heaven. You give me the sip of the nip. <laughs> yeah, man. Poor Albie. He just... <laughs> He's a man of simple desires. <laughs> so I was happy hearing that he got to have some some juicy juice all this late in the game. That's how I'm trying to go out. Shit, man. I particularly like that he stationed him out to see the stars because, and this is morbid of me, but that's kind of what I would like to look at if I only get one last, you know, visual on Earth. Mm-hmm. Look at the sky. Yeah, something something natural and inviting and calming. Yeah. Infinite. Yeah. It is weird how much of an effect Albie has on the movie, and he's not in it at all. He gets like two whole scenes and then he's gone. I love I love the scene where he's like, he's in the car and high tide has come, you know. <laughs> and the water's like, you know, up to the door of the car, and he's just like, Dickie, yeah. I'm in I- I'm in trouble. <laughs> The man has some wind in his lungs. Like he he shouts across a hill, Richard! And then when he's in the castle, Richard! Okay, man has needs. He needs to be attended to. I don't know if this was just because Dickie was like super duper drunk or if it's just one of the, this is like, I, I love how this is kind of up for interpretation, but like the scene where he like forces George to drink, mm-hmm. he like pours him a glass and he hands it to him and he's like, hey, this is for you. Oh, I, I don't do that. Yeah. Like the, the, the compelling part of this argument is I have ulcers and ulcers don't mix well with alcohol. But the part that uh, Dickie responds to is. I don't drink until 8 a.m. Yeah, it's too late. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't, it's too early in the morning or whatever. And he goes, I don't care what time it is. Are we pals or are we pals? He doesn't give a fuck about the ulcer part. (laughs) Yeah, that's just Dickie being regular. But like the the question here for me is, is Dickie like actually trying to create camaraderie between him and his, his kidnappees or... Is he just so drunk and silly that he's like, this is a common thing that like drunk people like to do is like, hey, I'm drunk. Now you have to drink because I'm drunk. I guess I can see how that is open because I'm not I'm no closer to a conclusion on that myself. Another thing that I like is when George interrogates Dickie and be like, you picked the wrong time to come to my house. And uh, Dickie is like, one does not choose the hour in which one is in trouble. And I was like, Dickie! (laughs) Yeah. He's the man of the people, dude. Yes. And that's the that's the fucked up part is because he presents himself initially as, hey, it's me, Dickie. Your friendly neighborhood Dickie. We all love Dickie. Yeah, yeah. He shouts this like when when they're scared behind a corner, like, who who's there? He's not like, who said that? And whips out his gun. He's like, Dickie, using your phone. He is being incredibly reasonable for someone who's basically kidnapping these people. And they're reacting like, no, get the fuck out of here. You're breaking in. And like, yes, yes, I acknowledge I'm breaking in, but it's it's an emergency. Me and my friend are in trouble. You look like able-bodied people. 
people help push the car because he's like in need out there yeah yeah and, and i guess the weird the dissonance for me is like i would not respond well to a trespasser with guns knowing full well you're injured from some mysterious crime that you've done on on my property bossing me around but at the same time if I had to hang out with these three people, I'd prefer to hang out with Dickie. From their perspective, Dickie's arm could have been broken from any number of things, right? Yeah. Strangling a guy and then just getting a bad spasm or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or or maybe even on the way up here to try to find help, he tripped and fell and made a quick little sling out of some cloth he had on him. You know, it, it could be any number of things. It could be something very innocent. And I imagine when you're in this situation, someone's like, me and my friend are in trouble. We need your help. You're not thinking like, this guy's a career criminal and he like fucking broke his arm while trying to murder a guy. You know what really helps give that point across? Um, well, of course, it's the language, but it does not hurt that Dickie sounds like a croaking trumpet or a croaking tuba <laughs> to help establish just how unpleasant he is. I uh, I know that 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 type of like uh, I guess dialectic or that type of like uh, speaking style has fallen out of vogue in modern day, but at the time it was probably popular enough for you to just be like he talks like one of those people. Okay, he sounds like my boy. My boys sound like that. Yeah, this is not an uncommon manner of speech. He just wants to sound like a tough guy, and admittedly, he kind of looks like a tough guy too. So it, it adds up. This all sort of his fingers are the size of sausages. Like he's a big man. I don't know if it's just me. But I felt like everybody's fingers were the size of sausages in this film. Like Albie's fingers, when he's holding up the binoculars, I'm like, are those really his hands? They're like two and a half times the size of his face. Those are double hands. They're not even. <laughs> and then they got like bear claw nails. What is Albie doing? I forgot who else was had like a hand shot. And I was like, oh, that's just a stylistic thing with this movie. Everyone has grisly hands. That could have been a uh, a stylistic choice. Try to show the hands and to have actors with like bigger hands. Uh, maybe. Maybe if we paid closer attention, we'd be able to note that like the working class people like Albie and the Dickie do have bigger hands. But then all of the people who are like, you know, well to do and, and rich folk have normal sized hands. And maybe that's like the Distinction is like you have to do a lot of hard work. You get bigger hands as a result. Secret world building. Yeah, hands as a as a means of character development. <laughs> so we're not actually on Earth. He's part of the hand race, and these are part of the uh, the the digits race. So it's really uncommon for a hands racer to be on the digits island. <laughs> It's interesting that, like, George is, like, our closest connection to, like, a working class man of the, like, richer people. Like, he had a job. It was a typically blue collar kind of job. He was in the military. He quit his job and sold his, uh, he said he sold something. Was it a factory or he sold his, uh... It, it sounded like he sold something specific and I didn't know what that specific thing was. I'm gonna assume factory. I, I remember it was something. Maybe it was gallery or something. I doubt it. He's not a good artist. So unlikely he sold something and that's how he was able to afford his castle, his fortress, his, we, the more we find out, the more it's like, well, no, he wasn't like a military man. Like the way we imagine a military man, he was in the armored infantry. He, he sat inside of a tank and, uh, he was an officer. So even more so like not 
really the typical type of military we imagine. He's, you know, in charge of other people and he's sitting inside of a tank the entire time. And I'm not trying to take away from like working inside of a tank and how dangerous that is and everything, but like, uh, I don't know. I want to talk about how one part of my prediction, the wild part of my prediction, was in the movie. The castle has terrible drafts and those drafts are not just unpleasant. They're like, oh my gosh, Dickie. They're like, they're dreadful. And I'm like, Minotaurs speaking in tongues late at night. (laughs) (laughs) The the owl was the Minotaur. (laughs) (laughs) The drafts of the winter are also the Minotaur. Because he's like being held by Dickie when he says it too. He's like, no, no. It's like way worse than that. It's like, it's like terrible. But then after he says it, like the next sentence is his normal voice, normal volume. You could barely speak the treasury, the noise. There was also the aspect of it, like when they introduced our, our, our the, the newest character addition to the the troop, uh, James, the attendant, the the gardener slash chicken wrangler. <laughs> Who also happens to be willing to do butlery, I guess. Whatever you imagine James can do, he's he's in charge of that. I, I don't know why none of the, like, friends that were visiting were like, Hey, uh, you just said he's your gardener slash, like, chicken handler, but, like, you're telling him to go to the wine cellar and cook you a chicken? You just don't interfere between a boss and their employee. So if they want to change that job description right now for our comfort, then the employee should totally oblige. And I do like how... Dickie's like, remember how I was only in charge of two things? And George is like, remember his arm, honey? Honey? And Teresa's like, yeah, I do remember those things. And I'm still making demands because I hate you. It's just good character acting. Like, Teresa never takes her foot off the pedal. <laughs> like, at any point, he could just say, you know what? I'm sick and tired of being James. My name's Dickie and I have a gun. I'm <laughs> all of you hostage now. <laughs> yes. Like, he could just do that. What the fuck are you doing, Teresa? Stop! So when I saw Teresa discipline little Horace, I was like, oh, that's nice. It turns out her and Dickie have something in common. And then she she pulls her little bicycle prank on Dickie. And I was like, no, she should have been high-fiving Horace and causing mayhem the whole time. Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah. There's no I- respect for people or property. So what? Wh- <laughs> Why did I think that she was capable of disciplining somebody? It's like having, like, two cats, right? Like, they're both little hellions. You think they would get along, but they don't. Like, anytime one cat, like, comes into the other cat's, like, area, it's pissed off and it's trying to fight. She's so amused that there's a shielding a loaded gun. And I was like, can we please get footage of Teresa loading the gun and handing it to Horace? Because I fully believe that, I mean, everyone's like, wasn't that an unloaded gun? Horace, how could you load that gun? I was like, that seems like a Teresa move. God, Teresa's just such a good character. <laughs> Don't get hot and bothered over there. <laughs> Ooh, like a pumpkin? <laughs> Teresa, <gasps> when will this woman stop? <laughs> I'm just saying, like, look, a, a big fear of mine is that, like, when I grow old, life's gonna get really boring, you know? Just, you know, my body's deteriorating. I just want to nap, you know? I need someone in the house just raising hell at all hours of the day. Wear you out more, give you gray hair faster. Yeah. Give yourself a Teresa <laughs> <laughs> to insult you when you need a nap. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No matter what, just unyielding. To lie to your face about a man sexually assaulting her so that you'll, like, be more willing to shoot the guy. 
Yes, to give you the gun and then hide behind you every time you use the gun or hold the gun. <laughs> uh, I genuinely thought, so as I'm watching this scene, I'm like, oh, George isn't going to be able to. Teresa's going to take the gun and shoot it. That's absolutely how I thought that was going to be. Like, George was going to fire like two or three times and Teresa was going to be like, oh, geez, come on, man. And she was going to take it and just bap, 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 give it to him, you know? Mm -hmm. And like when, when I heard her accusing him, I was like, the only person in this castle that is obsessed with manliness is not dicky that sounds like a teresa logic yes i was there to see it but like most reasonable always regular guy with you regular dicky just suddenly decides to almost rape your wife right on the lawn beside you <laughs> like yeah come on sometimes actors are just like smarter than I am as an audience member because I'm mm -hmm. listening to her like screaming as he's like sitting on top of her spanking her and I'm like oh, this isn't terribly convincing you know and then I'm like oh because Teresa's acting right now she's acting like she's in distress mm -hmm. but she's not like she's in complete control of this situation she's she's orchestrated this from the very beginning oh no 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 I believed for sure that she was in distress because nobody has grabbed Teresa by her tail and said you don't do that to me except for this one moment where she finally gets something like a comeuppance and she's like that shall never pass you are the most heinous being that has ever lived on the planet you will absolutely get a comeuppance nobody nobody spanks Teresa for being a bad girl I did I did not read it that way at all I read it as Teresa was like oh no I am being no. spanked oh no. what a distressful situation okay. this is I and, disagree and... because Teresa has not shown planning at any point mm, that's vaguely true yeah <laughs> I bet I can get away with this. Ah, uh, I guess I can, kind of. I bet I can get away with this. Ah, uh, I, I guess I, I sort of can. I can't get away with this? Uh-uh, gun, gun. <laughs> Oh, man. I love how uh, uh, she just, like, traipses around in the house, finds, like, the unloaded shotgun and just, like, starts pretending to shoot it into the wind, like, eh. <laughs> Oh, Teresa. She's better than the rest of us, man, I'll tell you that. Mm -hmm. And then for a while, you're like, is George trying to evolve? Because he's saying no. He's, he's telling the people in his same class that they're not welcome, that they're not fun to be around, that one of them nags all the time, that the other's using him. He don't appreciate it much. Please leave. And like, they comply. So then he ends up telling like the, the straggler with the gun, I think. And, and that happens. And then Christopher's like, but, but shrimping, but shrimping. And she's like, I'm not in the mood for shrimping. Dickie finalizes that. But then, then George is like, wow, when I say no, people listen. I'm tired of you, Dickie. You should get going too. How long do you plan on being here? And Dickie's like, hey, hey, I taught you that move. <laughs> 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 He's like, oh. <laughs> I thought it was especially tragic that like at the at the end of the film, like right before everything really pops off, Dickie spells it out for George and Teresa, like, hey, just get inside here so I can leave and you won't know where I'm going. I'll probably lock the door or whatever, but in the amount of time it'll take you to break out of this room that I'm going to lock you in, I will have gone and you won't be able to say he drove northward or he drove southward or whatever have you. Yeah, you know? I'll use the only road and then yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's, I'm either going to go left or right. And like at, at that point, like when they're refusing to go in, I would just say, all right, whatever. I mean, if they called the police and told them what happened, they'd have a 50% chance of like giving them the correct direction that I went in, even if they guessed, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll just, yeah, fine. I won't lock you guys up. You guys can tell them which way I'm going if you want to. But like, honestly, at that point, I would just say, hey, uh, based on the goodwill that I've shown you in this difficult time, please be respectful and don't call the police on me. And then Teresa would spit in your eye (laughs) yeah yeah so he gets shot up pretty bad as we remember seeing and i was like no and then he goes gets his gun the same gun that george has repeatedly mocked or mimicked the thug action we've been promised the crook that we expect and i was like he's gonna mow them down and i wouldn't be too upset about that (laughs) but he doesn't i mean it's like he wanted to but then his knee gives out so he doesn't and i was like oh i mean yay but also all I was kind of like, as I'm envisioning the ending happening as it's playing out, I'm in my mind thinking, oh, so like this is one of those movies that ends with everybody dying. Yeah, everybody dies and and gets like some kind of a, you know, comeuppance for being a shitty person. But the ending that we actually got is a lot more thoughtful than that. Mm -hmm. I guess I kind of like it better because we're really regularly as American audiences, we're regularly interested in seeing death as the worst outcome that can possibly occur. And that's just not true right Mm -hmm. i think it is much much worse and maybe they should have leaned into this a little bit more leaned into george's like dependency on Teresa, his devotion to her his like i just can't be without her and then to have her leave for like another man which as an audience member like we're kind of like yeah that felt pretty inevitable right she's kind of always been sort of that way angry because of like woman it was you that put this gun in my hand it was you i didn't want to kill dickie it was you it was your lie it was your gun you're hiding behind me and now you're like you fool come with me so we can run away from the very castle that you built like i am just i'm so lost with you i'm just so lost well i think Teresa's problem with george is that he didn't like keep it together in that like trying time even though she kind of created a circumstance where it's like this was clearly self-defense and you're fine sometimes and again as american audiences we love to be like well it was self-defense so i will never feel any guilt whenever i'm experiencing a self-defense situation i think that you're you're right on the money i think that george had something of a camaraderie with dickie like with their time spent together and you know they're, they're sort of revealing small secrets they have to one another i think george actually sort of respected and had something of a friendship with dickie even if he was sort sort of on edge because of Teresa. Mm-hmm. It is because of like his unwillingness to be like, yep, I defended myself and therefore I have no like bad feelings about this. I'm not taken aback by it. I don't feel guilty and we can just go back to our normal life. Let me just put out this little fire really quick and everything will be fine. Yeah, it speaks to his emotional state. Like you said, I really enjoyed just because you, you do the right thing doesn't mean that you don't experience any adverse effects for it. If he leans into the self-defense, that doesn't mean that he doesn't feel his first kill of another human being. To add insult to injury, in my madness, me projecting myself as George, in my madness, woman, I put your clothes together. I put your jewelry together. It's probably the funnest part I've had since, you know, the terrible point of no return that just occurred. And you left the one, like, I cared for you. And you left the bags on the porch as I ouch man double ouch 
two bags, two ouches. So a couple of things. We don't know that this is his first kill. It's very possible, given his military experience, that he's killed before. But there's a big difference between killing in wartime mm -hmm. and killing someone that you like, you've just spent a weekend together with. Mm -hmm. That's true. And I think that that's like an interesting through line there, you know, like the difference between those things. And also like speaking on the note of like killing someone in wartime is technically lawful and killing someone, someone who's holding you against your will or kidnapping you or whatever is also technically lawful. So it's an interesting discussion on like how law does not define good or bad or uh, it, it feels nice or it feels wrong or whatever. Um, they even talk about this when they're talking about Albie and Dickie's uh, trying to bury Albie and she's like he's dead oh my god and he's like oh you don't say because he because he fucking knows yeah i dig because it's my hobby oh <laughs> uh, yeah so, some of those lines are kind of funny I, like as audience members we know that he's you know just trying to be coy and not have to acknowledge like a friend of mine died i don't want to fucking talk about it right now leave me alone so he's just he's trying to be kind of silly good old dicky classic classic dicky so he says these things and she's like well you'll have to wait three days to bury him and he goes uh why and she goes well it's against the law and he's like oh is it <laughs> <laughs> Al Albie wouldn't care about that. Albie knew exactly where to shove the law. Yes. We get this like dialogue sort of these these again the movie likes to have these few lines where they'll bring up the the major points that you're kind of supposed to get it based on the other actions in the film where yeah it doesn't really seem like the law dictates what it is you're supposed to be doing it's just the law. <laughs> For a while there, because I hadn't established Dickie as like a good guy or an everyday guy, when George is getting dirt on top of him, I was like, oh, and Teresa's going to kick more dirt so that she's no longer married to George. Oh, no, she she gives him a chair to help him out of the... Oh, I, I guess that's one way of dealing with this character. <laughs> I genuinely thought he was going to be buried alive alongside Albie. Yeah, there was a moment there where I thought that as well. You don't really hear Teresa saying anything and her body's not moving like quickly or anything. And dirt is being thrown on him and it looks like he kind of like gives up with his back all arched and stuff. I was like, well, he prostrated. So you know what that means. <laughs> Game over, man. Game over. That's that's the end <laughs> of it. Up. Yep. I'm not going to lie. I was genuinely concerned that this movie would be like a little too art housey for us to really have any meaningful discussion discussion on it. What the movie ends up doing well by keeping us isolated from music to basically live minute by minute with these characters, it feels true to life. You don't always get context and there's plenty of space in between connecting with somebody and not connecting. So for discourse, it makes sense to remember those scenes as isolated events and talk about them that way. I think it'd be harder if like the movie is interconnected and all of the clues are Easter eggs and everything's foreshadowing or not foreshadowed. Like that would be harder to pick apart than this movie, but I'm very happy to have gotten through it about. I think I started to let my guard down two thirds of the movie in I was like it's mature and I know that Teresa's a Teresa's an instigator and I just I'm so afraid of it becoming art house right now eventually I was like nah she's just naked that's it so this movie is considered something of a masterpiece did you get that feeling from watching it did you really feel like this was like a masterpiece type of film I did it has a lot of stage presence to it I had expected it to be like like vertigo, like avant-garde, cutting edge, nobody's ever seen this sort of camera angle before. And it was very mild. It was like a little bit to the right to show the beach because that's where
where Therese is leaving, a little bit to center because that's where the conversation is, a little bit to the left because they're leaving. But each of those points, like it was more painterly than I expected. Like you've definitely had a background, a midground, and a foreground. And that's not something most people would pay attention to, but I care about that stuff because I like things that look beautiful. I mean, they have a shot of just like a chicken walking down a hallway. And I was like, I would be cutting this, but you did not cut it. So I'm going to keep watching this chicken walk down this hallway. For the record, I am in support of the chicken walking down the hallway scene. <laughs> Just that's, I'm, that's the kind of scene I would leave in. And people would be like, well, you know, this this movie you made could have a couple things cut from it. And I would immediately be like, if you're going to say the chicken, chicken scene. Not that chicken and not that hallway. Get, get the fuck out of here if you're going to bring up the chicken scene. Just get out. <laughs> and like, I also recognized the choice to have the chicken rack in front of the camera so that when they're destroying the chicken house, they're coming closer to the camera instead of away from the camera. I was like, oh, that's that's cool. I can do with that too. Oh, oh, the last scene that I'll bring up that I particularly noticed was the transition. Dickie's on like the right side of the room. There's a coat in the center of the camera and Teresa comes in and grabs the gun from his coat. So we get to definitely see the gun. We know exactly whose coat it's from. Dickie's in the shot completely unaware and Teresa and her malintentions go off to the left. Our favorite villain, Teresa. <laughs> love to hate other people because they're fun to hate with her it's confusing it's like yeah. I why, can't... why do i love this woman so deeply and yet <laughs> i i hate the things she's doing <laughs> it's understandable why george fell for her spell mm -hmm. hey man I'm, I'm with you george we all want a dummy mommy like uh, <laughs> Teresa. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that I do, I understand it as a masterpiece and it's so self-contained, like it's one, oh man, I remember reading it in the end credits, but I didn't actually keep it. It's one island and I, I appreciate that the plot doesn't have to go to more locations. Like most of the time I'm complaining about that. I'm like, oh, the living room again for this sitcom. But that's because stuff is happening outside of the living room and then we're only in the living room because that's convenient. But no, we're all around the castle. It's not just from the bedroom shot where the lawn and the chicken coop and the garage and the ramp the story happens there and it ends there almost there's the tide but you know what i mean all my favorite shots you're, you're talking about shot composition and and things uh so for the record earlier you mentioned very briefly where you were like you know sometimes it'll be sort of off center so when we talk about framing like what we put inside of a of a shot basically what we want to do is we put the most important thing either dead center so that you know this is what you're supposed to be looking at right and usually you kind of do that when you're doing like a more fast paced movie and it's kind of difficult to like you know keep your eye where it needs to be so you kind of want to put whatever you want them to see right in the center or if it's a slower movie kind of like this one where there's not a lot of fast moving parts what you want to do is keep things a little off center get the thing that you want them to look at on one side and then leave a lot of what they call thinking space or thinking room. Uh, sometimes it's also called speaking room or speaking space. And this kind of makes, it gives a lot of gravitas to the scene. It gives you a lot of gravitas to the shot. It makes it look like there's a lot going on, even though it's just a lady standing in front of a beach. I know there's a word for this. Uh, it's probably like three words, but where the action ends in one shot and the cut happens and it picks up where your eye would be at the end of that action, mm -hmm. that happens here too. And I appreciate that. I feel like if, if something stops in the right side, don't make me look at the 
top left to find the thing that you want me to look at in the next shot. That's, I don't know. I don't like the way that happens, but like plenty of times things will end in the center or they'll end to like one third or the other third. And it's easy to pick up like the stair scene. The camera barely moves in that, but you get a whole bunch of movement because of the way that they use the location. So people are coming up the stairs looking bigger and bigger because they're getting closer and they have that column there and then there's right by the door so you get to see them but then they're leaving and now it's small and they're obscured by the stair rail there's a shot where dickie's like waking up in the morning after he had just gotten really drunk and he's like sort of standing up and stretching and yawning and then cut to him walking outside it's the now the camera's facing his back but he's still kind of yawning a little bit so like the transition is just gorgeous Yes. Yeah. There's there's never a time where I feel like, how did we get here? It's like, I'm looking exactly where I need to, even when it's pause, even when it's like B footage. You can make the argument that transitioning to the sky for those dang seagulls might not be exactly where the movement is. But I argue that the timing of that cut makes it feel makes me feel like I'm not missing critical information. All right. Well, so we're, we're coming up on that time anyway. So was there was there anything you want to say as a last minute thing or? Um, the film is not as scary as I thought it was going to be for something named cul-de-sac. And they didn't say the word. So I'm 15% wrong on that prediction. But I did get to look at something very beautiful in black and white. And uh, I did have one character that I was invested in the whole time. And that's what I'm hoping for if you're ever going to sit me through like a grand scale view of society with one character representing themes bigger than I can understand. At least give me somebody that I can root for as they're going through it. So I am happy that I had this experience. Thank you for showing me cul-de-sac. I'm not trying to say we were dead on with our Willy Wonka prediction, but another thing that we didn't talk about that like was pretty close to what we were looking for is that the criminal guy kind of tries to pretend to be someone he's not at some point. <laughs> you know, he, he becomes James, the, the likable gardener guy. <laughs> and he does want to escape, but into his boss's arms, but still. Yeah. I do wonder what George would do when he was like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving now. Because when it was presented as like an option that he could actually stay there forever, I was like, well, what's what's so wrong about, about uh, Dickie staying here forever? <laughs> that wouldn't be so Clearly bad, Clearly right? you have not asked Teresa. <laughs> it feels like it was a thing that was said and maybe, maybe... Dickie should have been like, well, actually, that's a pretty good idea. Maybe I could work. I don't know. Might have been. Might have been nice. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's a, there was a there was a cute little romance here that could have played out for for George, Teresa, and Dickie, or or maybe just George and, and Dickie. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Teresa's the problem. <laughs> we gotta get rid of her. That that's how it could have ended. I really, I would not have been opposed to that. But um, the good news is, the, like maybe the good news is that chris she found out chris doesn't doesn't vibe with her as much as she wanted i mean i should have had i mean i should have had a clue when she put a crab on his face <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that doesn't seem nice that just doesn't seem like a nice thing Dude, there was not a single scene wasted with Teresa. the crab on the face we should have known already oh this this lady's a lunatic oh she's kind of playful i guess maybe oh that actor is must have been really committed because crab on the face i genuinely thought as i'm seeing this i'm like oh what a sweet little scene between lovers they're so playful and fun with each other that's nice <laughs> little did i know this was this was the movie being like no 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 we decided her character and we're not deviating for a second <laughs> 
I recommend cul-de-sac to anybody that thinks the relationship is just, it's good, but for some reason it's not fulfilling. You know, just look at this relationship and see if you can find what a f red flag might look like. And maybe <laughs> if you have red flags. <laughs> and if you don't see anything wrong with Teresa's behavior, then just know that you want a dummy mommy. And that's what you're looking for. That's what you're into. You've, you've learned that about yourself. You learn that masterfully through uh, through the the cinematography of this film. Yeah, the the, the acting performance of Teresa's uh, actor. But hey, that's gonna be the end of today's episode. A good night and a happy dummy mommy to all, or an angry dummy mommy. We want we want him angry. I'm sorry, we want him kind of pissed off. Nice and chaotic. Oh yeah, <laughs> a spicy dummy mommy to all. 